You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Greetings. This is a message from Dr. Alan Honlove of the Good Catch Institute. The weather is getting colder, and you're still desperately one-hanging your fall project. Or maybe you've decided to do something easier but more miserable, like ice climbing. Isn't it time to renew your commitment to your Belair with something more than an occasional high-five? Good Catch is here to help you reinvigorate the foundation of what brought you and your belayer together in the first place. Our expert staff here at Good Catch suggests that you create a safe, warm space for your belayer with the belay parka and stance belay pants combo from our friends at Black Diamond Equipment. The BD belay parka features two layers of insulation, a two-way zipper for wrapping that belay device, and huge internal pockets where your belayer can keep your shoes warm for your next go. The Stance Belay Pants bring the heat with side zips to get in and out even with crampons on. Being wrapped in the BD Belay Parka and Stance Belay Pants create the feeling of a warm hug from a trusted loved one without the actual human touch that might, you know, give your belayer the wrong idea. But nothing says, Uh, dude, I'm just going to try this part one more time. Like some bomber insulated outerwear from Black Diamond Equipment. Check it all out at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop. And remember, if you are cold, they're freezing their ass off. Squama by Sportiva. A shoe for climbers who are not afraid to send. Climbing obsession. Why are you so obsessed? Squama. Squama vegan. Precision. Stability. Squama vegan. Skin like. Why are you so obsessed? What would you do for the sand? What would you do for the sand? Squama by Sportiva. Squama. What would you do for the sin? Elevate your sending with the Squama and elevate your consciousness with the new Squama Vegan. All the sending without the animal derived materials. Find the Squama at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. Squama. What would you do for the sand? We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing it at? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold that out. Out. I'll see. We really should. The hell are you doing? couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Time and Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012.
And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Normacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is October 28th, 2022, about 10.30 here in Colorado. And this is episode 251 of the Normacast, a conversation with Steve McClure, formerly known as Strong Steve McClure. Apparently, the strong doesn't apply anymore, according to him. You'll have to hear it from his mouth in the interview, because uh, I don't really believe it either frankly. Anyhow, this is where I usually interrupt with some business, but you know what? We don't really do business over here at the Enormacast anymore. I don't got anything going on except for putting out podcasts. It's so streamlined. It's like a freaking Lamborghini, a podcast Lamborghini, just so streamlined. There's no resistance between you and the podcast. Can you feel that? Can you feel the podcast whipping over you? Like the air on the autostrada. You're in your Lamborghini. You're going 220 kilometers per hour in your Countach. Can you feel it? Sentilo. Amore mio. There, that straightened you out a little bit, didn't it? You were getting a little uptight there, dude. A little uptight. Now just relax. Because I have you. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't really do live shows if I can help it. Um, I don't sell any merchandise. I do give stickers away. If you want a sticker, you can send me an address. Please put sticker somewhere in the title of the email because that way I can maybe find it by just, you know, searching sticker every once in a while when I misplace a bunch of those. But yeah, just uh, just podcasts coming at you over here. So let's get to the interview with Steve McClure. This was a blast. Here's what happened. I did the interview, had a great time. I edited the interview, had a great time listening to it again, which isn't always the case. Sometimes it's a little bit of work. You know, I've heard it all before. But then I didn't like the mix at all. And so I went back and redid the entire edit again. Third time, still liked it. So that's pretty good. That's pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, we connected. It was fun. Steve's about the same age as me, almost exactly. Um, Steve climbs and has climbed a lot harder than I have, but we've both climbed all over the place. We're both lifers, and um, I thought we had a really great chat where we just connected and had a lot of fun. And the thing about this is, is that Steve McClure climbs much, much harder than you do, but he loves it. And even though you guys may think that you're on a different plane of existence Climbing-wise is Steve McClure. When you listen to this interview, you're going to love climbing more than you do right now. He just engenders his love of climbing through the microphone into your ear, your head, your brain, and you're going to smile and be like, yeah, climbing is fucking cool. Thanks, Steve, for reminding me of that. But I have to do one little thing, which is talk about the story that we open with, which I have held sacred for a long time that I ran into Steve McClure and Garth Miller in Montserrat in Spain. I knew Garth. I didn't know Steve. And uh, I told Steve that story in the beginning here, and he has no recollection of it, 
which makes me wonder if I made it up. Now, I know that I met Garth in a gully on Montserrat because I, I knew Garth from years before, and I know he was with someone. So that part of it I'm sure of, but now I'm no longer sure it was Steve McClure. But I actually, I'm still leaning that direction because Steve gets another fact in this really wrong about his own life, and uh, I'm going to correct that at the end. And so, you know, he's not infallible. And so there's a chance that he just fucking forgot. Okay, so I'm sticking with it. I'm sticking with that I met Steve McClure with Garth Miller in a gully on Montserrat. Although, now that you think about it, it could have been, I don't know, Neil Gresham. That doesn't, that doesn't sound right on my tongue, though. Steve McClure sounds right. But also, I've told the story a few times, so, God, memory's fucked. And I've reached out to Garth, but I haven't got anything back. Um, I had a line of, line of communication with Garth going a couple years ago, but uh, haven't been able to get back in touch with him to confirm or deny the story. He was the only other person witnessing that, besides the birds and the insects. So, uh, yeah, the story may be bullshit, apocryphal. I just wanted so desperately to meet Steve McClure, I made up a story where I did. How's that? Oh, and if you're listening to this and you are the actual person that was with Garth Miller in Montserrat and met me, get in touch because let's get this story straightened out. And whoever you are, I'll interview you next. It'd be it'd be hilarious if it was Ron Kauk or something where I'm just like, how did I get from you to Steve McGonagall? Whatever. You're coming on the show. Actually, I'd love to have Ron on the show. I've tried. I've tried. But that doesn't matter because I got Steve McClure. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, actually emailed me out of the blue just to to talk about the podcast and I don't know if it was a little rude maybe but I like thanked you for it and then jumped on like wow I gotta have Steve on the show anyway so I appreciate that that email and I'm really psyched to have you here it's an email I've been meaning to write for a long time because I've listened to loads of podcasts and I almost feel a bit guilty that I would like listen to so many of them and not ever sort of get in touch to say like good work nice one oh, right it's, on. it's a lot of work and uh yeah, I, I wonder how many people actually get in touch to say good effort because, you know, there must be a load of listeners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not not that many, but it's fine because, like, my email is, you know, something that I'm sort of allergic to anyway. So <laughs> if I just toil, toil, silently toil without thanks, um, that's sometimes better than getting a lot of emails, even, even fun ones. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the other thing is in our email exchange, I reminded you that uh, and I didn't expect you to remember this at all, um, that we actually ran into each other uh, one time in Montserrat in Spain. And um, just to kind of tell that story there, I was in Spain climbing with a buddy in Barcelona, and he had something to do, and he suggested I just take the train out, and then you can take the train up to the uh, up to the monastery on Montserrat. And then I was up there. I think I actually was climbing, like just kind of trying to get some rope set up and soloing. And then I heard some voices and thought, oh, maybe there's people to climb with because the voices were speaking English. And then I popped over into a ravine. You guys were climbing in like a ravine. And it was you and Garth Miller, Australian climber, also someone um, I've kind of vaguely bugged to get on the show. Um, he's a little reluctant, but I could probably make him do it. Um, 
but yeah, and then it, and then it turned out you were you and Garth were climbing. So I think you remember actually being there um, with Garth. Is that correct? Oh man, do you know I'm not sure I can. <laughs> okay, like I, it's flipping ages ago. That that that's like what twenty plus. Oh, it's got to be. I'm making this entire story up. <laughs> I reckon you've made it up. <laughs> like I'm not sure. I have been there, so maybe it's actually right. true. But it's a it's okay. definitely it's flipping ages ago. That I haven't and seen you've Garth with for Garth, years. right? Yeah, I mean, I have climbed with him. The yeah. last time I remember hanging with Garth was probably in the Blue Mountains. Okay, and that was all right. God, so maybe I've just ago. made that story up, and I'm going to get rid of it. But it's it's all right. It's I mean, I'll, <laughs> let's go with it. So yeah, it was good to see you there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, you were climbing really well. Actually, I remember that. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. I I basically burned both you guys off. Whatever the fuck you were yeah, working yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. We, we were um, rubbish in my tannies. <laughs> so, yeah. Good. Good work. Uh, yeah. Thanks. But anyway, let me ask. Let me ask you kind of a big question. One of the one of the exciting things to talk about someone talk with someone like you is is your uh you know you've got this really long career and it's a very British career. Um, you, <laughs> British. I've seen, well, and I've seen you talk about like a British climber. I, I want to be known as a British climber, and uh, maybe we can get into what that exactly means too. But a question I have because I'm always interested in cultures as much as people, and you know if. So it's kind of a weird sort of broad question, but if you, you know, had to do some sort of witness relocation or, you know, you had to pull like a Rolling Stones thing where you couldn't, couldn't live in the UK anymore for like tax reasons. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and we're like forced to, uh, you know, live in some place like the U S or on the continent or something like that. What, what do you think you would miss sort of most about the British climbing scene about being, a member of that and yeah. not just a, a member, but you know, in the locale day by day, what's, what are the things that like stick out to you as being so special about climbing where you climb and with the people you climb and within the culture you climb? I mean, that's, that's a, a, a good question. And it's, it's something which we sort of think about quite a lot. And even just in the last few days, I've been thinking about that sort of stuff because we just come back from a really, really good trip to Kalimnos, which was so awesome. You had like every single thing you wanted out of a summer holiday. And you're thinking, wow, it'd be so, so good to live out here. And I've got friends who do live pretty much full time on Kalimnos. And then you get back and you're thinking, oh, like, oh God, it's, it's so disappointing being back home. It's so depressing. And then you do a few things. You know, we went over to the Lake District, did some long multi-pitch trad stuff. And you go to North Wales and then you go out to the Peak District. You do all this bits and bobs. And you just realize it is the variation. We just have tons of stuff all really close. It's a bit like the States. You've got massive variation. But you've got to drive for like two weeks to get to different stuff. <laughs> and we, we, we can drive for like two hours and you've got massive variation. And I think that's what I'd miss. And the, the scene's awesome as well. And because it's all really close together, the scene's pretty tight knit. And mm-hmm. yeah, this is the stuff. It's just different. You know, you could live somewhere like, you know, somewhere in Greece or somewhere in the south of Spain, uh, south of France, that kind of thing. But it's going to be similar. And we've, we've got a lot of variation. And, and we have like a big season change as well. Similar to what you've got. It's a bit wetter here, to be honest. Could do with it being a little bit yes. drier. Maybe not quite so dark. That would be nice to be a bit lighter. But I, I, I try to not moan. I am British, so I do moan, <laughs> right. of course. Um, I try to moan too much. But yeah, man, it, the variation is what I'd miss. 
Well, it, you know, and again, I saw some some articles and maybe on a video or something that you mentioned this idea of like what a British climber is. I think in one film you said that's like if you want folks to remember you as that. Can you maybe in your mind like what defines that? You know, I, I can think of characteristics that I put with American climbers, you know, traditionally, historically. Um, what do you think? What do you think that means when you say something like that? Um, what does it mean to you anyway? A British climber would be somebody who has kind of got involved with all of the stuff which we have in Britain. They haven't gone down like a sort of single track and become like a, a comp climber or a boulderer or a sport climber or whatever. But they've just dabbled with all the different bits and pieces. And maybe they weren't so good at any one thing, but they tried their best and, and did okay in all the different disciplines. So that would be maybe a bit of a single pitch trad, maybe a little bit of multi-pitch, getting into the uh, sport, a bit of bouldering, a bit of deep water soloing, maybe a bit of wintery stuff as well. And just all the different types of rock and different crags that we've got. So ju just the full spectrum. And I mean, if you take someone like, say, Hazel, I mean, you, you've spoke to Hazel quite a few times. She's a real British rock climber. She's done so much stuff. And, and she's awesome to, to play good and hard in all the different disciplines. So I think of her as a real British climber. And that's what I'd like to think of myself. I don't really mind what other people think. And, and for sure, as I get older, I find myself being more of a British climber because I, I'm not so focused on that, that hard thing. You know how it is. You, I'm sure you have a, a part of life where you, you knuckle down and you, you dig in and you want to you be the best you can be. And then certainly as I've got a bit older, that being the best that I can be has has kind of dwindled a little bit. And I find myself <laughs> doing I find myself doing those like big days in the mountains where they're not even very hard. They might be like five, ten. And you get back and think, that was flipping awesome. Like what a good day that was. I want I want to do more of that. Yeah, I mean it's good that you can have a transition like that because it is you know, I talk to a lot of climbers who have been at it for a long time and you know, the longevity thing is there's a physical element to it, but there's also just a mental element to it. And there's an easy yeah. path too, where people, you know, as their performance starts to dwindle, they fall out of the sport because they don't, you know, they, they can't sort of like take a step back and, and maybe enjoy these other aspects that don't test them quite as much. Um, yeah. Yeah. For sure, you know, man. It, did, did you ever like question that in terms of your own you know, last few years, as as you said, you've getting older and you're and you're trying these other things. Um, or has so, it I mean, been an easy, easy kind of transition to start thinking about the future without like ah hard hard hardest <laughs> thing I can ever do? So I've still I've still not written myself off yet. <laughs> I, <laughs> no problem. I, I could still we're the same I, age, dude. I'm I'm still hanging on too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I could still pull it out of the bag. I've, I've got a bit left in the tank, I reckon. Hey, one of the things I've really noticed um, in the last couple of years like so you know like we have this like um thing in climbing where we tend to do some like amazing routes and as soon as you've done one route you, you're on to the next aren't you it's not mm. like listening to some music where you listen to a tune and you think oh that's flipping awesome that one listen to it again you tend to do a route and it and then you move on and i figure as you get a bit older and maybe you lose your cutting edge you can like you can come back down and do these routes again and I, i've done quite a few of the routes that I maybe thought I wouldn't do again because you because you don't because you move on, but I've done them again and and kind of thought, wow, like I'm so glad that I did that route again because it's just brilliant. And if I'd just done it once, that would be a bit of a shame. So I kind of figure that like 
as you get older, you maybe you go over this hill and you get second bite of the cherry. You can you can <laughs> keep on go right back down again to like five seven or something. Start at the bottom, go at the top, back to the bottom. You get two two bites. Brilliant. Would it also include you know something that you might have to kind of reproject, nah. um, like spend <laughs> some time on? <laughs> uh, so that that oh, I don't know. I've got friends who are in their sixties who are like reprojecting. And they seem to be getting <laughs> stacks out of it. So maybe um, I, I haven't quite got there yet. Um, right, I'm, right. No, maybe. Who knows? I mean, that's probably the next the next level. I think it would be hard. <laughs> it'd be pretty stern. The next level it? of desiccation. <laughs> Whoa, I imagine like like digging in for like a sort of multi multi day red point project on something that you already did, and especially yeah. if you failed, <laughs> I'd be disappointed. Right. Philosophically, it's interesting because you're you're right about the going back and doing like the old easier routes you did, but there is something strange about you know the red point where you know you clip the chains and then we shan't ever speak of this again, kind of thing. Where you spend all this time, you know, you've told all your friends how great the route is, how much you love the movement, like everything else through the process is like something you kind of do to bolster your psych and keep yourself going. Like I love, I just love working on this one part of it. And, and then you clip the chains on the go and then like, it's over, we're gone. We're never going to look at that thing again. You know what I mean? Like philosophically it is strange, although I totally agree. It seems to be a bit of a waste of time to go reproject it. Well, that's the thing. It seems like a waste of time, but then is it? Maybe we should just all just do one route, find one route you really like, and then just stick with that. I mean, Just, <laughs> we, we're on this conveyor belt thing where we, we do what we do. And uh, mm. maybe we, maybe, you know, like I've done some rubbish red points in my time. I should have just done the good ones twice. Right. Who knows? That's a, that's a, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Thinking about that. Yeah. But hey, I've done a couple of, um, you know, like routes that I'd on-sighted in the past and then on-sighted again. Well, well <laughs> on-sighted again is that thing. Felt like it, that's for sure. Uh, but done again, forgotten all about it. So you feel like you, you you know you're climbing afresh, and it's just so good to do those again. Mm-hmm. I think maybe we shouldn't write off a route as like once it's done, it's done. I think going back and doing them again is is awesome because I mean some of the routes are just brilliant. Some of the stuff I was doing out in Kalimnos, not done them for like oh like sixteen years, and uh, they're just mega. Like they've got to be done at least twice, at least twice. The British climber thing, um, I'll, I'll belabor that one more time, but it sounds like that actually is your, also your origin, you know, uh, just easily read about it, you know, climbing with your mom and dad and as a pretty young kid, but they sounded like in that upbringing, at least in the beginning, sounded like that, the, the British climbing method, let's go out, we'll crag, we'll do a bunch of different stuff and learn how to be a solid climber. Uh, can you sort of describe that a little bit about what kind of climbers you're, you're parents were and and kind of turned you into in the early days so i'm pretty old now well same age as you actually so i won't say pretty old i'm 52 so so i started when i was well my, my folks were going out way way back so in the in the early 70s and uh, it was all obviously all traditional back then no indoor walls nobody even thought of an indoor wall training was not even invented it was just you know going out it was about just being in the outside really climbing was like a thing that you did when you're out there and I sort of latched onto that. And I think that's my my sort of, um, my thing is being in the outdoors, maybe even more than climbing. And so we'd be out all the time and I just sort of picked up the stuff from them. 
the rope work that you use, like sticking slings around trees and round blocks. And we didn't have much gear, you know, it was a bit shoddy. You had the old, these old moaks. And I think we even had like, like hawser laid ropes or something. They were, they were pretty sketch. Didn't even have a figure of eight. We had this weird like T-shaped thing with teeth on it that you used as an abseil thing. And it was just getting into the the outdoor vertical world. The thing that was missing, I won't say missing because we weren't missing it, was there was no performance element. So you, you mm. weren't trying to be good or be your best. You just went out and did some routes that looked good. And I think that's a really pure way to climb. And, and I think a lot of people still climb like that now, but obviously a lot of people, it's about performance and climbing to the next grade and training to climb to the next grade. Whereas we didn't do that at all. We just went out and climbed stuff. And if you found it easy, you would be thinking, okay, well, I'll, I'll try something maybe a little bit more challenging. But you, you were looking for something which was interesting to climb and you weren't trying to get better. You were just looking for something interesting to climb. And I, I think I climbed like that for years until I was about 18. I never really thought about wanting to be any better. And then gradually that it seeps in. And you think, oh, flipping neck, it'd be good to climb a little bit harder. And then you're like you're looking for the ways to climb harder. But certainly the first like 18 years of my life were never about looking to perform better. It was just about being out and climbing those classics, like those classic lines. That's I think that's one of the things about um, the, the sort of British climbing and, and, and US climbing as well. We have these classic lines. You know, you know, you know, the name is more than the grades. You know what I mean? Like it's mm -hmm. about um, what you see in those books, those magazines and those guidebooks. You know, you pour over them. You see those pictures of those dudes climbing them and where they're wearing those like uh, tights and the old like uh, hand wag boots and all whatever. And and that's what inspires you more than the, the than the grade. Well, I found in in your history, you know, kind of a hinge point that you've pointed out as well, and that was mentioned a couple times as uh, a couple accidents that occurred sometime probably in your teens, I guess, um, including a, a friend hitting the ground in front of you and is for all intents and purposes dying in front of you and then turned out not to be dead. Um, I don't need any more details, but the thing that came with that is a walking away from climbing for a little bit. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that story as far as how it did change you and the idea of leaving this thing that you'd been doing so intently uh, for so yeah. long and, and when, when in your arc that did happen as far as your age or your level of experience. So I think I was about 21. Yeah, I think I was okay. about 21. And before that, I was like just mad keen, like super keen to get out. Uh, it was all trad as well back then. There was no there was no sport climbing. So a full, full trad climber. And uh, yeah, my mate had this like gnarly accident. Didn't even fall very far, to be honest. Just landed like really bad. And uh, it shook me because I think up until that point, I think like a lot of youngsters, you just think you're invincible and you, you'd never see consequence so you get away with a lot of stuff and suddenly it was like, oh, right, flipping heck, like bad stuff can happen. I, I kind of lost my bottle a bit. Ironically, I, I don't think I climbed much worse or with much more fear, but I, I just didn't like the environment anymore. So, you know, if I was out climbing with somebody and they were like, oh, I, I really fancy trying this uh, 512B, um, give us a beer later. And I'd be like, oh, no, I'm not so sure about that. It looks a little bit thin. Like, the gear looks a bit sketchy. Are you, are you sure you don't want to just go to the bar or, or whatever? So I just realized that I wasn't really 
I wasn't really enjoying the whole environment. And, I, and there was no way for me to go back then because I, I didn't know anything about sport climbing or, or bouldering or, or, or whatever. And uh, I mean, I had a really easy out at that time because a lot of my mates were going traveling. And that seemed to be like the done thing. Everyone was like uh, doing some sort of crappy jobs and then heading off to India or Nepal, Thailand. So I just sort of jumped on that bandwagon, really, and disappeared off for quite a while, to be honest. I had a good chunk, good a few like six-month trips. In a way, it was a bit of a blessing, the whole thing, because if I hadn't, if I hadn't had the, um, the experience with this accident, I probably wouldn't have done that kind of traveling. You know, we're talking like non-climbing traveling. We're talking like mm-hmm. visiting castles and hanging out on the beach and stuff like that, which which was awesome. It was so good to have done that because I don't think I'd do that anymore now. There's always going to be some crag, some crag visit. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not going to spend like six months now like wandering around some desert and, and looking at castles and things. But it was it was great. And then when I came back, I was kind of like um, rejuvenated and I, I sort of set off just dabbling with climbing and just completely tumbled into this sport climbing scene which was something I didn't see coming at all. I think I just sort of um, met a couple of people who were going out. They had a car, which I'd never had before, and took me to a few crags, and then boom, before I knew it, little crimps and bolts, happy days. (laughs) You know, one of the little blurb I saw, and there was no expansion on this, but I can't let it go, is I saw a little blurb somewhere about something about an 80-foot ground fall. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) We, so that, that, yeah, that's that, fine. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, I that's... mean, obviously, you survived it, which seems odd. But yeah, I, could, I couldn't, I wrote it down. I'm like, I got to ask him about this thing. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so, I mean, that's that's a big story, that one. I'm going to try and whiz okay. it really quick. No, no, it's uh, fine. We got plenty of time. <laughs> so it was, it, was a, it was an outrageous situation in a place called Pembroke, which is down in the, the south of Wales. And it was an easy route, not very hard, probably about five, nine. And there was four of us. And we went to try and do this route. And you can climb it in two pitches if you want, or you can do it in one pitch from the the ground, which is tidal. And the tide was in. The sea was insane. It was like crashing in. Like the waves were monsters, like bashing up the wall. The spray was going up the wall by about like 70 foot. And, you know, it was such an angry sea. And I remember we all looked down and we're like, wow, like that is just mental. So we were like, well, we want to do the route. So let's just do the top pitch. So what we'll do is we'll abseil onto that little ledge thing down there, all four of us. And then we can like hang out and watch the sea crashing in, which is what we did. We, we bailed down to this little ledge. And then anyway, my one of my mates set off. He, he led the uh, top pitch, about 80 foot or something like that. And then this is where the mix-up happened. Now, obviously, the sea was mental it was so um it was so crashing and it was so loud there was no communication so we defaulted back to the old um three tugs on the rope means good to go i'm sure you've used that one before we've all used that one and uh there was just a bit of a tangle he he, he got to the top he pulled all the rope through and then he he basically thought that uh, it snagged and he started tugging on the rope uh, unfortunately, he ha- he hadn't got an anchor at that point. He just got to the top and then yarded all the rope through, and then thought, "Oh, that's that's weird. Um, it must have got snagged." So I'll I'll give it a few sharp tugs. Unfortunately, three, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, whoa, okay. Well, it must be time to climb." 
I'll just hang out for a little bit longer just in case. Oh, there, there are three more tugs. Must be definitely time to climb. And then it, it, so it went on. And then I was like, right, get the belay out quick. You know, it's time to go. Set off from the belay. First handhold, snap. It just snapped straight off. And um, obviously my mate now, he's stood on a ledge and he just watches the rope just go whizzing out. And he's thinking, ooh, this isn't quite what's supposed to happen. And I just go flying down the cliff. And I can remember, I honestly can still remember watching the sky, like looking up at the sky and thinking, this isn't supposed to happen. Like, I'm sure the rope will come tight soon. And then, boom, I was just completely knocked out. And obviously, I didn't see what happened. But according to my mates who were, because there was two guys still on the ledge, I'd like hit this ledge thing, like a sort of sloping ledge, landed on my back. And then like slid off into the sea, <laughs> which was which was uh, quite unlucky because this was like the maddest sea like in history. And now underwater, unconscious, smashed around by all these waves for uh, some period of time. Don't know, it might have been 10 seconds or something. And then finally I came out, out of the water and I, I was sort of like washed quite far out to sea. And uh, the waves were like crashing me around. And by some total fluke, this big wave like washed me in and left me dangling on this bizarrely good jug as the waves like, you can imagine the, the, the waves like sucked back out and then you can see the rock below and then they're crashing back in again. I'm dangling by one arm. <laughs> and um, the, the guys on the ledge above me, they're like trying to lower a rope down and it's flicking around all over the place and they, they, you know they can't possibly get, I can't get hold of it, it's no chance. And uh, I'm trying to shout up, look, I'm still tied on to a rope. <laughs> Just get hold of this one. Pull on that one. <laughs> Pull on that one. And they finally got hold of that <laughs> and started to like sort of drag me up. And somehow I got back up to the uh, the ledge where they were. And uh, then it, was, it started sort of kicking a bit. I couldn't move one of my arms or one of my legs. And I was like, oh, my God, I've paralyzed myself. Like I've, I'm pretty sure I've hit my back pretty hard. Anyway, it sort of unfolded from there. Like they, One of the guys went up and legged off to get a helicopter. And uh, that came, and I, I sort of got half dragged up the cliff, and I, I landed on the top of the cliff just as the chopper arrived, and they like bundled me on, and then there we go. So I spent like a couple of weeks in a nice hospital, and got away with it just a punctured lung, which uh, was quite minor to be honest, considering how far I fell. But honestly, it wasn't the. I don't think of myself lucky from getting away with hitting the rock from eighty foot. It was the sea. And that's the bit that I can't explain enough. Like, I can say, wow, I fell at 84 on his ledge. And you go, ooh, that's right. that's a long way. But that was the minor bit. It was the sea was mental. But anyway, we, we got away with that. And, uh, yeah, so that, that, ironically, that didn't really make much difference to my uh, psych. I, did, I didn't sort of fall out with climbing then. I just kind of brushed it off as a thing that happened. And, uh, yeah, move on to the next. Got away with it. It was it was much more the next year when my my mate sort of fell off and crashed right in front of me. That was much more of a like, ooh, oh right, wow, yeah, flipping neck. Like, I, I guess maybe when I fell off, I had still had that like, yeah, yeah, man, like you know, stuff happens, but yeah, you just get away with it. When you're young, you're invincible. But then when I saw my mate fall, it was like, oh no, actually, no, you're not. Like, bad stuff can happen. Uh, best take a bit more care. I don't know if I can articulate it, but I can understand why the thing that happened to you didn't bother you as much as the thing that happened to someone else, you know, team or, or whatever. I, I, you know, I can totally as a younger man 
get that feeling of where, yeah, if I screwed up or if I got hurt, it's not a big deal. But if I saw, I don't know, I I, I feel the same way. If I saw someone else, it seemed like yeah. more serious in a, in a weird way because maybe that psychology of, you know, I will overcome this or I, I you know, because it's me and I can handle it. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to articulate, but I do understand what you're saying about one thing not bothering you and the next thing of a similar ilk just kind of shut you down. Yeah, I think it was the, the, I suppose the scale of it, like, so my accident was like a big, big accident and it was turned out kind of all right. But mm. my mates was a relatively small thing, the sort of thing that could happen on a sure. small outcrop crag. You know, it was, it was only like 20 foot up and you just think, wow, like something really bad can happen in like any situation. And it just, it, it, didn't, it sent the uh, the fear through me, that's for sure. But, I mean, in a way, it all worked out really good because I ended up on this, like, conveyor belt of mm-hmm. traveling and then back and then sport climbing, and then here we are. So yeah, you've got to find the positive. Yeah, I mean, eh? in- interestingly, this is the second falling into the uh, ocean in Wales uh, story that's been <laughs> on the Normacast um, with uh, Pritchard's oh, story hey, yeah. that, that was much, much more uh, <laughs> where he actually thinks he was dead for a little while as they pulled him out of the ocean so yeah anyway. he's had a couple of uh issues hasn't he he's yeah. had a couple of yeah. crazy yeah i mean I, i've been aren't... through a couple of things but not nothing compared to what he's been through nothing right so the big then hinge point next is that you find sport climbing and i think that that you know if you if you google steve mcclure that's you know we start talking <laughs> about that right away which is is i think it's fascinating because bookended in there or, or sprinkled in there is still a ton of traditional climbing and, and also your your roots as a traditional climber but this is where strong steve appears in, in the, <laughs> do you know the... what that is like that's such a joke name that i mean if anybody was to use that that now it's just it's laughable it, honestly i was never very strong i think i had sort of like semi-strong fingers for about a year but in terms of i mean god i think guys these days <laughs> I mean, I look like a total punter in terms of strength. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever been. Maybe strong. they're taking the piss out of you, actually. You know, hey, that? yeah, just Damn like it. oh god, there's strong Steve. Here he yeah. comes, Mister Strong Guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've you've just ruined those years. Maybe they were. No, I th- I think I did have a bit of a false. Um, I pulled the wool over their eyes, eh? <laughs> really, right, right, got yeah. away with it for years. But no, that. That, that let's just ditch that name because certainly okay, in, cool. in the in the current climate, I would definitely be like weak Steve. How does he get up anything? <laughs> like, well, surely... I, only, I I brought it up. I did just take the piss out of you because I brought it up knowing that you um, that you've disavowed it um, in recent years anyway. So um, <laughs> good. But what what I'd like like you to do if you can put it into terms that the rest of us understand is is describe to me uh raven's tour and you know this is also part of me like trying to like always get a feel for a scene and you know it's like got this awesomely cool name it plays this huge yeah i think raven's tour it's like something from uh the goddamn lord of the rings you know like you would you know it's like i mean that's where dude was when he was writing that so um it plays such this huge role in British climbing, obviously British sport climbing, you know, if, if you talk about it, it's there. And I have, you know, I've seen the videos of it, but describe like, like what it is, how big it is. Um, and then 
maybe we could talk a little bit about your history there and its history in, in British climbing because it's just such this important hunk of rock and I it see is. pictures of it and it's just like it's just like hideously wet at times and like <laughs> you know it it's like you were saying about being dark kind of like the darkness or whatever it, it's it's definitely like you know you've got Kalimnos and you've got the French you know south of France kind of limestone and then there's Ravenstor and it lives up to its name it's like it doesn't even look like those places you know it doesn't um, so look yeah like tell it's... me about Ravenstor bring bring me there get me to Ravenstor right. um, I may never show up there but uh, I I want to <laughs> you want to right so I need to give it like a a kind of a bit of a semi big up without bigging up so much that if you do actually go there, you will kill me for bigging up too much. So, how much did I spend on this plane ticket uh, to yeah, get to yeah. this place? Hey, it, it has happened. I think famously, it might have even been someone like Alan Watts or something. I can't remember. Right. I think I think he he tried to find it and uh, looked at it and he was like, "That's not it," and he drove past, <laughs> and then and then it was, and he drove back and he was like, "Really." But that's doing it maybe a disservice. So I mm-hmm. suppose in a nutshell, let's let's talk about the good things first. So it climbs well. So it's intense climbing. It's not like um, a load of big moves on big holes. It's not about that sort of stuff. It's about little holes. It's, it's powerful, though. So small holes, bad feet, really intense. It's got a lot of moves for its height. But let's, t- let's just describe the crag for those who are like... Uh, they've got this like image in their mind of... Uh, Maybe they've got thinking like the Grand Grot, or they're mm-hmm. thinking it's like um, some like amazing like like Seuss or something. It's not right. quite as good as those crags. It's but like I say, it's got something about it. So the, the crag's got like a, a high left hand side. It's pretty high. It's like thirty meters, so it's pretty tall, and and it's got a lot of moves in those thirty meters. And then it kind of like slopes down. So the 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 right hand side is maybe only about eight meters high it's very bouldery and you've got different types of routes in between you've got sort of long stamina kind of routes and then sort of really bouldery intense routes so it kind of caters for everybody really the style like i say it's it's fingery it's powerful it's got bad feet packs a lot in it tends to have no juggy rests and um easy sections it's just it just keeps on coming at you and i think people why people like it is because it's really intense and a lot of people have said if you can climb well there, you can probably climb well in most places because you need you need strong fingers, you need accurate feet, you need good body tension, you need a lot of like strong attributes to do well there. Uh, in terms of visual, yeah, it's it looks nice until you get too close up. <laughs> Look from a distance, and it, it's a it's a nice piece of rock. It's not rubbish. Uh, no doubt, it it's grown to fame mainly due to location so it's it's close to sheffield it's only 30 minutes drive from sheffield and sheffield's is you know it's got a long history and i think people were you know they were going out there climbing the test pieces what back in the sort of mid 80s to mid 90s and, and beyond and uh, it just got a massive reputation as having the hardest routes in the world i guess yeah hardest mm-hmm. routes in the world how about that and uh, yeah, I think if for people that like that kind of intense style, there's not many people go there and walk away thinking, "Oh, that was disappointing." Most people right. will come away and think, "Okay, it, it wasn't Seuss, but flipping neck, it it packs some climbing in that crag." And uh, yeah, p- people come back amazingly. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, again, like I'm I'm only talking about history that I know and, and that gets repeated and, you know, uh, famous roots like Hubble and it was this, this you know, ground for the very, that first generation of, of really hard performance rock climbers and, you know, the Ben Moon and Moffat and those cats um, putting up these test pieces there. What's your relationship time-wise to sort of that generation in terms of, when you came on the scene, how much younger are you? Um, you not know, much. Kind of... Not much. No, I kind of, I'm just about that generation, but I, mm. I wasn't in the scene at all. So I think Ben Moon is probably about 54, maybe. Mm-hmm. Jerry, Jerry's like sort of either 60 or getting close to 60. Sorry, Jerry, if you're not quite 60. So I, I'm not far off that generation, but I, I just missed it. I wasn't I wasn't in it at that time. I was right. bumbling around with a bunch of wires while they were like cranking out and I was I was like reading the magazines, like totally blown away, watching the stuff they were doing, thinking, Wow, God, that looks so cool. People like Martin Atkinson and all the, these dudes, they were properly cranking. And I just uh yeah, I just didn't I didn't find an entry point until they'd basically mm-hmm. like sacked it off and all gone bouldering. And so <laughs> I'm kind of their generation, but I, I didn't start until later which I think is probably a good thing in a way. I mean, I kind of, it would have been cool to be in amongst it while they were there, but I kind of convinced myself and maybe kid myself that everybody's got like a a period of time that they can do something for. You know what I mean? Like if you, mm-hmm. if you t- start like um, absolutely crushing at 20, can you still be arsed at 50? Don't know, really. Maybe some people can, <laughs> but um, I, I kind of convinced myself that I started late and that was good. <laughs> I kind of use that word generation, and so so age wise you were, but but as far as your um, a kind of ascendancy to your best performance, you were a little bit behind those guys, and and that probably you know like we all stand on the shoulders of people that came before us, and and those guys in a lot of ways blazed the the sport climbing in the UK, which was you know, no mean feat as far as just kind of fighting against tradition. Um, it happened everywhere that, well, not quite every, but it, the States was the same way. It, you know, there was a lot of rebellion that had to happen and a lot of um, talk in the media about the, the end of climbing around sport climbing and all that sort oh, of thing. Man. And I can only, yeah. I mean, I know from history that it was a big deal, you know, the British Mountaineering Council, you know, pounding lecterns and stamping their feet about bolts and sport climbing and all that sort of thing. So you probably sort of benefited from not having to do that quite as much. Although I, I bet it was still, you know, seen as like a rebellious thing to do is to go sport climbing. Even when you started, it, it, you know, it, it, I think I kind of missed it. And there was a little right. bit, maybe a little bit going on where it was, it was seen as, I mean, well, I mean, funnily enough, when I, I can remember my first sport experience in the UK, I mean, I, I'd done a few, few little bits and pieces and um i remember going to this crag called rubicon and there was this geezer trying um 7c plus let the tribe increase it's called and um he said have a go at this route here and uh so i was like okay i'll try that route and um i tried it on site well flash fell off it like did absolutely useless and uh, sat on the bolt and he was, and I was like, oh, oh well, it's flipping impossible. This, okay, right. Well, it was a good effort. Lower us down. And he was like, no, 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 mate, no, you don't do that. No, you don't lower, you don't lower off. 
you like you hang there and then you you do the moves and i was like what what, what do you mean you do the moves he was like yeah no you, you work it out like look, look you, there's a hold up there you missed it and i was like oh yeah, yeah i did miss that hold yeah you're right oh okay and he's like right okay then grab the next quick draw clip into it and try, do the rest of it and i was like oh, okay whatever so i did that to the top and then he was like right now you're going to red point it and i was oh, okay whatever okay i'll give it a go okay this is i've read this is this is what people do so let's give it a burn and i, I red pointed this route and it was flipping awesome it just felt amazing <laughs> it was so hard and yet i didn't fall off it you know i was like dead pointing to these holes and just hanging on and like my feet were like on these tiny little nubbins and you know, got to the anchor and it was like, wow, that was so flipping hard. And I, and I didn't fall off. Wow, that was cool. But I still had this like, oh, I'm not sure whether I, I didn't really do it, did I? Like, I, I didn't do that. Like, that's not actually an ascent. It doesn't count for anything. You know, I'm not comfortable with it. And I kind of walked away feeling a bit like, oh, well, that was a bit odd. I'm not sure what I did there. So I still had this like trad kind of trad guy thing. And then I was dabbling in the sport climbing world. And anyway, it, it sort of started from there. I think it was that feeling of, you know, right your limit. Because as a trad climber, certainly in those earliest days, you, you don't climb like that. You, you don't push that hard or, or you, you know, you've gone wrong big time. So to experience that intensity of climbing, that was really what hooked me in. And, um, you know, from there, it was just like, yeah, just i want to do a lot of this i want to i want to climb at my limit and there's something super special about that which makes sport climbing just awesome of our generation everybody seems to, that that moved into sport climbing because it was it wasn't a thing and then it was a thing it didn't exist then it existed and uh if you had a foot in the trad world you probably went along with everybody else that you know dissing it <laughs> uh, slagging it off, whatever you want to say before you ever even tried it. But yeah, it's funny how all these climbers, myself included, have a story where there was this, this clicking yeah. in your brain of like, wait. And usually it was, this is really fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not is, scared. <laughs> yeah, I'm not scared. And this is really fun. Um, is really like the click. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man. <laughs> and also like, wow, I, I just did these moves that I would never do. Um, and, and that was also really fun and, and, and energizing, you know, even talking to S Scotty Franklin a few months ago, like they had to really break the mold where they were climbing, um, in the gunks when they started hanging on the rope even, but realizing like what the potential was, it's like the, the doors just flew open to the future kind of a thing. Yeah, man. I mean, it is, it's just a completely different thing, isn't it? Like trad climbing, mm -hmm. sport climbing, they're just different and they have like completely different attributes and you, you got to take them on um, different levels and they're, they're both awesome. But to be able to climb, I mean, you know what it's like when you're on some crazy on site and you're just hammering away in every move, you're almost out of there and somehow you get to the top. It's just wild, that feeling, you know, to have gone through an experience where, you know, you're on the limit for for multiple multiple minutes it's just it's just it's just amazing it's just utterly brilliant I, I i love it but then at the flip side i love it when you you know you're completely absorbed in some trad experience and you know you've got so many things to consider is that why you're going to work or what about that that little uh that old monkey peg over there and will that cam hold you know you've got so much to think about you know they're, they're just different sports and they're both great the other thing i think that probably helped is it seems like when you 
when you went into sort of your renaissance after traveling and besides the pictures I saw of you as like the wayward traveler were awesome, by the way, <laughs> um, you had, you had all the gear on, you, you know, your dreadlocks and the whole thing. And I, but then I was thinking about that too. I was like, there's no way he could have kept that up. Like there, you, you've got a personality obviously that, that digs into these things. And I think aimless wandering probably was good for a moment, but wouldn't have sustained you much longer. Um, I don't know if that that's like pop psychology, but um, it seems like you were going to find something that, that brought you into like focus. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I can't, the sort of the traveling thing, maybe it wasn't, it wasn't completely aimless. <laughs> it wasn't like I was right. just some like total nomad. <laughs> and like I, it had, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm the kind castles. of like, I'm like a born engineer, so like I, like I kind of had a plan, and I wasn't just wishy washing around. In fact, as part of that um, that experience, I did go to Tonsai, uh, you know, like uh, Krabi mm-hmm. in Thailand, and which was a total fluke. I'd, I'd never heard of it before. I was just like bumbling around in Thailand, and some geezer said, "Oh, there's this really cool place." I think I was just talking about rock climbing to somebody, and he said, "Oh, there's some like there's some climbing guys." At this place, go and check it out. So I was like, "All oh, right, okay, I'll go and check that out." <laughs> it was just, it was incredible. Like that, that as an experience to go and visit that, that, that destination place back in about '92, whatever it was. Even though it was, it was kind of hardly even discovered. It was, it was, it was a proper life experience. That's something I feel absolutely privileged to have been part of. Because now I think it's, it's pretty different. You know, tourism has uh, grabbed hold of it because it's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my, I don't think I could have been a, a, a lifelong traveling bum. Not not quite set up for right. that. Well, one of the things that happened too is once you got back into it, which is what I was really going to ask you is um or talk about is that you you had a, a good amount of success. You were drawn to sport climbing. You understood it. That this five or six years or three years or whatever it was off didn't seem to bother you. Um, once you got back into sport climbing, is it the case that that success probably like grabbed hold of you even more and, and drove you and also what what do you suppose you attribute the success to just the foundation as a as a climber that you did for 15 years before that it has to be just that massive foundation and i think an, an appropriate foundation is probably important to maybe i mean it might not even be right it feels like i had an, an appropriate foundation for what i wanted to do which is maybe different to the foundation that younger climbers have these days. Um, if they wanted to do the sort of stuff that I was doing then, it might not match up so well. So, you know, a lot of hard climbing, especially in the UK, and that hard sport climb as well, it's not very steep really, and it's got a lot of small handholds and it requires accurate footwork. And it's not jumping between massive blobs. And it, it's not like massive long reaches. It's, it doesn't require huge arms. It requires steely fingers, accurate footwork, good determination, good technical skills. And, and I just had tons and tons of that. So it just sort of fed really well into into that style. And I, I don't think if you had a, a youth of climbing indoors on the, the sort of like modern generation climbing, I don't know whether that would send you in better stead. So, yes. Uh, I had a, a really appropriate long foundation, which just seemed to work out really well. And yeah, for sure, when somebody is doing well, uh, like I seem to be doing, it, it's, uh, you know, a pat on the back is always nice, isn't it? That always feels good. Yeah. But I mean, it just kind of washed over me, 
to be honest, I, I, I'm not um, somebody who uh, climbs for getting the big ups. I just uh, I move on to the next challenge and get stuck in, really. So when I was doing my quote-unquote research, like I'm, you know, it, it tends to like the 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 grades and the first nine A and the first nine A plus and the this and it kind of like washed over me and 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 became a little bit confusing. Um, but <laughs> I'd like well. to ask you about a couple. Great, yeah, I know it's funny. <laughs> it's like he did the first this, the first that, the first this, the first overseas this, the first you know. But the root mutation, and I know you've talked about this a lot, probably uh, seems to jump out as as a, I don't know, coming of age, a benchmark. Can you tell me a little bit about that climb, um, where it is and and what it is? And then I've, I've got a kind of couple process questions for you about that. And also maybe figure it in your career um, for those of us who haven't read the Wikipedia page or whatever. <laughs> Wikipedia page, man, <laughs> that gives some stuff, doesn't it? You've got a Wikipedia page, bro. It's, uh, it's quite good, actually. Is it good? <laughs> yeah. All right. It's flattering, yes. Oh, right. I'll check that out straight after this. I didn't even know I had one. <laughs> nice. Who makes those stuff up? I don't know. I have no idea where All it right. comes from. But of the Wikipedia pages I've read, I I, um, I think they've done a nice job on yours. Oh, good. They, the whoever. They, yeah, the, the people out there. Your agent. Stuff. My agent, yeah, of course. <laughs> I'll get in touch with my agent. <laughs> but no, okay, so, so I mean, mutation is, is ended up being like a really massive thing. But at the time, it didn't seem so massive, and it didn't even seem massive for quite a lot of years after either. It just it didn't get repeated for yonks, and it took, um, like, super strong Will Bosey, who was, like, flipping well strong, to get the second ascent. It's just, it really is a style thing. It's, like, ultra crimpy, it's awkward, foothills are rubbish. Uh, and it's complete like finger power endurance, so it, it just keeps on coming at you, and there's no respite at all. And it's uh, like high feet, keep your body in, you know, the sort of like short climbers style where you get some like rubbish hold and you get a high foot and tuck yourself in, so that like your trailing foot is you sort of counterbalance. You can imagine the body position, can't you? A lot of that, and it just absolutely suited me. And I've been doing tons of climbing at Raventor. I was really in the zone. And it, it's a, an extension to a Moffat Root Evolution um, 8C Plus. And um, this just blasts up the wall above it via a, apparently a sort of like, I don't know, pretty hard Fontate section, something like that. It's just really intense, but it very much suited me and it very much suited what I'd been doing. And I I worked on it for, I thought I would just, I thought I'd done it like one season, but I, I, as it turned out, I hadn't. I'd spent a couple of seasons trying it a little bit sporadically at first and then a bit more intensively later on. It took me like 20 days, I think, to actually get up it. It felt like a massive step up. But at the time, like I'd not climbed anything harder than that. I had nothing to compare it to. And I felt like a right, well, I, I can't even think of the right words. I just, I just didn't, I didn't feel like I could grade it anything special because if I'd said, as it's turned out, it was it's 9A+. plus. At the time, if I'd said, hey, guys, guess what? I've just climbed this like 9A+. Plus. The entire world would have said, uh, hang on, mate. Like, that's the first 9A+, plus in the <laughs> world. Like, right. like, who are you again? Like, nobody. <laughs> I don't think we can give you that. Sorry. So I was like, oh, I'm not sure. You know, maybe it's, eight, maybe it's only 8C+. Plus. And everyone was like, well, it's, a, it's an extension to an 8C+. Plus. With no rest, into some like really hard climbing, it's probably not eight C plus. So I said, "Oh, all right then. Well, uh, just let's give it nine in. Forget about it," which is kind of what I did. 
And then I just uh, imagine one of those giant chalkboards, you know, in a, in a, <laughs> in a, like a lecture hall with all these equations and yeah, yeah. equals, and you get ninety plus. <laughs> hey, have you seen that uh, that thing called Darth Grader? Have you seen that website? No. Oh man, no. Check it out. This thing called Darth Grader. Okay. It's really cool. It's on. It's on, It's online. And like, what you do is you type in. Like, you might type in like a eight C plus followed by a medium rest followed by font eight A, and it gives you the grade. Oh really? Yeah, oh, it's great. Oh, right on. You can have hours of endless fun doing this sort of stuff. <laughs> anyway, I, I can't remember what it turns out as. If you put my numbers in, not done that yet. I should have right. done. But anyway, so I climbed this route, called it mutation, which is a kind of obvious name because it extends evolution. And then, like I said, gave it nine A and just forgot about it and did other stuff. And I thought the other stuff was harder because it was let me more not my style, a bit more bigger holes, a bit more um, like big moves kind of things and anyway coming back to that after a long time it turned out to, it it was quite a big deal and uh, you know how some things gain momentum that route really gained momentum it had a few wadages try it you know andre had a little play on it magos had a go i think sharma pulled on the holes for a, for a one go i mean they didn't get involved with it very much and it was i mean you know how it works in the climbing world it, it's it's a bit unfair sometimes. You know, you, you hear, oh, Chris Sharma tried mutation and he didn't do it. It's, it's like, well, yeah, like he, he had like 10 minutes. <laughs> it's a bit right. unfair to say that. But that's the that's the way it works. I mean, I've had it happen to me as well. Steve McClure, he tried that route and he fell off it. <laughs> Must be desperate. <laughs> nope. Doesn't work like that at all. But yeah, it, it got quite a reputation and um, I was really hoping it would get done because sometimes they just gather dust and just get forgotten about but fortunately it got done and uh, i got sort of like second level uh, exposure <laughs> yeah totally Great. what year did you put it up 80, or did you send it 88 that's killer yeah wow. 1988 yeah it's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> way way back way back that's and, awesome i mean because yeah then it would have been by far the first i think i in, think in, uh, in grade. yeah because uh, sharma's realization was the first 9a plus and yeah, that was, that was 2000, was it? Yeah, in the art. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I want to maybe skip to also talk about Rain Man. Oh, did yeah. I read it correct that you sent that thing when you were 47, so like five years ago? Uh, Is that the route? Yeah, so I think I was 46, nearly 47, like right. pretty much almost okay. like birthday time. Right, 46, 47. Tell me a little bit about Rain Man. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've thought about that as a, a route a lot and so if we just break it down basically it climbs like a, a really brilliant 8a route you get to sort of like a, a, a bit of a shoddy rest not too bad and then you do a font 8a which is a really cool boulder problem uh, and that then if you do those two sections you then move left into a route called rain shadow which is 9a or my variation rain man well rain shadow is my route as well but um, the rain man it doesn't move left it goes straight up the wall into sort of 8C plus worth of climbing on like really technical stuff. It's steep, fingery, really accurate body position required, just goes on and on and on. And then you finish up a an 8A on the top as well. So it's it's a long route, it's got a lot of moves, but it's a really good line. It takes like the best part of the wall. It's it's the obvious way up the wall when you look from a distance. It's like it's just the the challenge. It just grabs you straight away. So I was really lucky to have got involved with that. Took me ages. Took me like seven years, and it was a proper journey. 
and I have not been on a journey like that before where I got so like uh, involved in it and there's lots of things which I could have done differently and there's there's things which if I'd known now I might have shaved some time off it the guys that are climbing at the moment they they're, they're fully knee padded up with all of the the top knee pad technology that might make a difference to the grade um, nobody's downgraded it yet had a few ascents <laughs> and I, but I I'm so glad that I didn't find any easier way because there would be nothing worse than having spent like a hundred days on it and getting really close and then someone saying hey use this like really good knee pad and then and I just go oh that's not very hard now like I didn't <laughs> want that to happen it's probably the one route that I've done where it was it was absolutely about the journey it really was and I wanted it to be that hard and I wanted it to take that long I didn't want to find anything any easier. I wanted to just get it by the skin of my teeth, and that's what happened. And it it was it was just mega. It was, and I didn't care how hard it was either. I still don't care how hard right. it was. Even if somebody said now, oh hey, this is like this is jug over here. Like how did you not see that? <laughs> you, and, why aren't you using this hand yeah, jam right here, Steve? <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a hand jam. You can hang off it for half an hour. It's it's AC plus, mate. Like what were you doing? I'd still go, oh, I'm so glad I didn't see that because it would have just messed up my journey. Because, I mean, I don't know whether I'll find something like that ever again, but I kind of think I probably won't. And that is going to be the, the, the climbing journey that I'm going to look back on when I'm 80 and think, yeah, man, that was, that was like the business. That was, that was the journey that, uh, that I don't think many people find or even like mm-hmm. hardly anybody will get on something that big. And, and where it ends up being that close. Because you know what it's like with most red points. Like you hear the stories, like, oh man, like I'm so pleased to get my red point. Wow, it was so close. I tried so hard. I tried, you know, seven days or something. You think, no man, like you didn't even start. Like seven days, you need to go seven right. years. You, you need to go to a point where you think, I, I probably won't do this. Like I'm just, I'm trying because I might, but I probably won't. You know, that's a special thing to, to keep on pushing when you think you probably won't do it. Mental training is like, uh, I think it's sort of a buzz phrase at the moment. We're, we're talking a lot in climbing. We're, we're past hangboarding and now we're talking about mental training a little bit. But let me ask you a little bit about that. I mean, it, it, that long of a journey, as you're calling it, that many probably opportunities to give up or your life to change or whatever. So tell me a little bit about your mental fortitude, uh, what, what sort of tricks or if you're just kind of you know, feel like you're predisposed to to dig in and work through wanting to give up or feeling like you're not going to be able to do it. Like once I've started something, I I like to give it my best shot. I think with that route, it wasn't just about the sort of like the um, the mental capacity to keep going. There was there was more to it than that, which was probably quite individual for me at the time. So I, I had a lot of stuff going on. You know, I had a uh, I. I had my daughter who was, oh, how old has she been? Um, she was like sort of five, six, seven. Well, it spends over seven years. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then I had a, a young lad as well. He'd just been born. So the like kids, kid world was quite intense. And I, I was renovating a house as well that we that I'm sat in right now. That took like years and years to do. Um, I had done quite a lot of stuff that was motivating me. So I was I was looking for the sort of next level. And it was just very convenient 
to have this as a like a a thing to fall back on. I think maybe in a way at that time in my life it was exactly what I needed. You know, I, I wasn't looking for month long trips to Greenland. Um, I wasn't looking for stuff like that. I was looking for something in which I could just like throw myself all in, but wasn't going to be too absorbing. So you know, in the in the periods I was trying it, which might have been like seven or eight weeks, I would I would go like twice a week, and I'd, I'd work my life around that. So that was like the thing that grabbed me, and it was very easy to let that grab me. It, it was it was comfortable. It was convenient, and uh, I, I think I used it as a bit of a crutch, maybe like. It was the thing that sort of like I could fall back on. I almost didn't want it to end because it was it was something that felt very big and very important, and yet not to, not too difficult to to devote that time to. You know, if someone had said, "Hey, why don't you go and try this like project in the south of France?" It would have been too hard to to give myself to that. So it just fell in very well with my life. It was the perfect um, hmm. the perfect thing, the perfect thing for me at that time. Lucky. It's interesting you mentioned the south of France because I, I just spoke with Seb Moin oh, man. on the uh, on the runout, and he mentioned how DNA just fit into the pandemic actually for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, you know, it's near his house. As soon as France kind of lightened up and you were actually allowed out of your house, it became like the perfect thing for him to work on during those couple years because there it was outside my door, and I'm not really comfortable going anywhere and i'll just go to this thing you know every other day or whatever so it's like a seven-year version of that <laughs> yeah i mean if you're going to try something which is like right on your limit you can't be distracted i mm. suppose you, you've got to sort of go all in and you might need these other things around you i suppose one of the one of the beauties of you know, well, the beauties of climbing and, and many other sports is you know you, you can make them fit around your life and you know, you can you can chop and change and do different stuff. And uh, these lifestyle sports that we're that we're into, you know, climbing, obviously, you know, we're in it for the long haul. Well, I certainly am, anyway, obviously, and so are you. And uh, it's good to do different stuff. You know, it's good to to be able to throw yourself into something and then and then move on to the next one. Isn't if you just did this the whole time, then you 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 know you you were asking before. You know, what does my my mental uh, trading look like and how how do i dig into something maybe i can't do that again maybe i'm not a real trier i'm just a a one-time trier just tried that once now that's it <laughs> sport climbing i think has this distinction in your life as as being the thing that brought you back to climbing um after this trad youth and you know a couple brushes with with almost death but throughout that, it sounds like at least at some point you came back to um, serious trad climbing as well. Can yeah. you explain your drift back to the trad or was it always there? Or, um, you know, thinking of some of these really hard things like Rhapsody or Lexicon that you ended up doing. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I'm, I think it was always there. Like I didn't sort of lose the, the trad edge completely. It's, it's, it's kind of like what's like what I'm made up of. That's. And when I go trad climbing now, I, I I just feel that's that's really what I enjoy most. I mean, it was just the other day I was out doing some. There were like five eights with my ten year old up in the mountains, and it was just so cool. You know, you just feel like there's so much going on. It's not just about hard climbing. There's just a lot of things. You're just out there. Anyway, it wasn't that I was drifted out of trad. It's just that sport took over. 
you know there was there was so much to do mm-hmm. it was so new and it was so exciting that i just sort of threw myself into that for what seemed like quite a few years and then there was a, a natural sort of tendency to get involved with some of the traditional climbs because yeah as you know not all traditional climbs are dangerous and the, some of them stand mm-hmm. out as being relatively safe and I, I could see that and i was drawn towards those and, and still am definitely but there's no doubt that if you have a, a really good run at sport climbing it massively helps your trad climbing like so much in so many ways i mean learning how to fall is one thing and knowing what happens when you fall but you know you get stronger you understand you know you know it's like on a trad route you, you know you start getting tired and you start thinking oh my god i'm i'm getting tired i'm going to die but after you've been sport climbing for ages <laughs> you're thinking i'm getting tired but that's all right. Like, I've got loads of time left. Like, I'm so used to this level of tired. I can hang on here for ages or I can just go down. I'm quite comfortable with this 50% fatigue level. You know, I can go to mm-hmm. 80%. Whereas if you've only ever traditional climbed, as soon as you reach 50%, you're like, whoa, do I like this? Like, uh, I need to go down immediately. So, yeah, the, the, mm-hmm. the sport climbing massively helps. And I've done quite a bit of hard trad, as it were. But it's not very dangerous, Trad. I'm not. I'm not the the guy doing that scary grit stuff where you're going to smash yourself to pieces if you fall off. You know, it's quite calculated, and you know, I'm not taking massive risks. I don't push myself too hard into the risk zone, but I really, really enjoy pushing hard physically when you've got to think about the game as well. I think that that is like the ultimate when you can combine those factors and climb like you're sport climbing, but have all the the trad climbing stuff going on around you as well. That that is like that's the best. That's the best. Yeah, it's it's interesting you um you know, describe yourself as at least somewhat I don't wouldn't say risk averse, but you're you calculated and, and you're aware of it and aren't gonna go do the full on um, you know, those old school kind of fall you die sort of grit roots. But you know, but at the same time like describing, you know, the stuff you have done and taking you know, some pretty massive whippers on dubious gear. It's just, it's just fun to listen to you talk, describe this thing as being like pretty safe that I think most of us would find extraordinarily terrifying. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, I think that also speaks to your roots. I mean, you're, you're like you, we started this whole thing, you're a British climber. And so, you know, taking a big whipper on a small gear is, is maybe part of climbing hard and in, 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 in that, that kind of zone, you know? I still feel as though I've not taken many risks. Um, well, right. not many big risks. I think you right. you sort of like you, you do that calculation, don't you? Where you you know it's it's a bit like you know high ball bouldering. You know you you could totally knacker yourself if you fall off, or you you think well I've, actually I probably won't. I'll probably land all right, but you know you, you might not do. So you, you're obviously taking some level of risk, like a lot of things in life. Mm-hmm. So. For some of the trad routes I'm doing, I'm, I'm weighing up the risks, and I generally think that they are acceptable. Although there was, I had a couple of couple of close calls in recent years where I just had to sort of have a bit of a reassess and just thought, hmm, that was maybe just, ah, maybe you shouldn't have done that, or or rather, okay, like I'm glad you did that because you got away with it, but you you sort of using up a few of your nine lives there take a bit more care and i've not really done that many times in the past but uh last year I, I, a couple of 
couple of things just made me sort of question um, whether I should be taking that level of risk. Yeah, maybe I'm just getting a bit old. <laughs> yeah, it just, I mean, if you're, if you're like paying attention, you, you get older, you start to, I think you start to realize like, yeah, you got away with it. You tiptoed to yeah. the graveyard I like that, that many good. times and, and yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, tip-toed so through I, the I think that just said, right. If you're not like a psych, like you're not psychotic, then you get older and you're like, all right, I got these kids. I got all this other stuff going on. Let's chill out just a just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's interesting, and may, maybe it was uh, maybe it was the strong Steve moniker, um, and also where you're from, and and the and the you know the cohort you sort of caught up with as an early sport climber. But I've I always assumed that you were some sort of like training fiend oh, um, no. from the from the early days, right? And you know, again, it's like you're surrounded with these guys that are famous, you know, for for basically almost inventing training but then in our talking and i think in our first couple emails like you sort of dispelled that a little bit and then reading about your motivations and things and i'm not a training podcast and no nope, um, you said but i do kind of want to talk about the full <laughs> do like so, sort of the the philosophy and, and maybe the arc of what it's the training has started as and were you just naturally like gifted and you were able to like climb outside has training come into your life as as you've gotten older um when you've had these spe- specific projects like where does it fit in terms of your personal use of it as far as your climbing and then also being again in this culture and surrounded by it so heavily for the last you know at least the last 15 years um if not longer in in the uk yeah i mean there's a I mean, training's like training's big now isn't it like if you're not training like what are you doing oh, yeah you got to be doing some training. <laughs> I I I I think I'm pretty rubbish at training. I, I just don't dig into it. I, I don't stick with anything at all. I, so I, I treat like an indoor wall as a as a crag. So you know, mm-hmm. I, when I go at the indoor wall, I'm just going climbing, and I, I don't do and have never really done very much training. There's been little sporadic sessions where I've I've thought, right, I'm going to do this for a bit, and, and like after a like a bouldering session, I'll I'll go and do some hangboarding or some pull-ups or bits and bobs like that. And I, I think it makes some difference, but I'm not sure it makes very much difference. I mean, when I did mutation, as an example, I could no way do a one-arm pull-up. No way. I couldn't hang off a 20 mil edge one-handed. There's a lot of things I couldn't do that I can do now, but I probably couldn't do mutation now. In fact, I'm pretty damn sure I couldn't <laughs> do it. So I'm, I'm potentially stronger but what is stronger? That's the big question, isn't it? You know, what strength do you need? It's about having the, the required strength for what you want to do. And I, I still feel as though there's maybe a little bit of a mismatch for a lot of people about what they want to do and what areas of strength they're training towards those goals. So I, I, I quite like being fit. I quite like um, exercise. So I'll always be doing stuff. But I don't think I'm very good at um, doing some proper dedicated rock climbing training in the sort of modern zone. And uh, I, 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 I'm quite cool with that. I'm happy with that. Um, yeah, I, I talk about it quite a lot. and I tell people what to do. <laughs> I just don't do it myself. But one day, <laughs> one day, I'm going to awesome. work on my, and I'm telling you, I'm going to work on my half crimp because it's rubbish. And it's the sort of weak link in my climbing. I'm, I used to be a crimper and now I'm a dragger. Not good enough. I need to work on the half crew. 
<laughs> man, so yeah, as the, soon thing, as you're, the thing which is get, which as soon is, as you get that house project done or whatever, you'll be you'll start working on your half. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. I'll get on that. But the thing which is, I just think is really interesting. If I go back to like, and it's the same for you, man, as well. If you go way back to, oh, like you know, like the early eighties and and the scene back then, you know, it was the sort of training people were doing. It was. It was like after like five pints of beer doing like 50 pull-ups on a door frame. You know, that was the stuff. And it was like hitching, hitching for like days on end to sleep in a cave for two months, eating just like tins of beans and just climbing and climbing and climbing. And just that's what you did. You had no money. You had no clothes hardly. You're just like wearing stuff you'd got from some charity shop for like, like no money at all. And there was no thought of like training. You know, like you wanted to climb hard stuff, but. You know, it was just that was just the life, and I I think back on that life with really fond memories of, you know, like sleeping under motorway bridges and, you know, just scavenging around, wearing the same clothes for months on end. It's great. It's absolutely great. Now it's uh, maybe it's too easy. Well, it can never be too easy, I suppose. When I was talking to Pritchard, like, you know, a lot of that whole dirt bag you know, climb eating crusts of bread kind of scene that we have in our head. You know, it came from an era really in the UK, you know, that that's like the images I have of that life. Um, you know, there's the Yosemite version of it, but yeah. then there's that, there's that dole climbing years version of it. That's so like heavy with mythology and, and power, you know, in terms of defining what we even do now as a culture. Um, even though it's like, you know, sprinter vans and, and whatever else like piled on top of each other. <laughs> yeah, um, but we still have this like roots that this, this was the real days. This was the real climbing days. So it's, it's fascinating, you know, that, that the weight of that like legend that even started there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. In Sheffield and, and around the peak and all those sorts of things. Hey, and I, in Wales. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I, I feel really like so super privileged to have lived through like so many different things. You know, like and like really being part of those as well. You know, like going way back to sort of like the the early days where we you know we had like didn't have a harness and didn't have any climbing shoes and chalk wasn't even thought of. And and then you know going through all these different eras of hitching around and then like sport climbing and and then it getting a bit more popular and then indoor walls and then competitions and the Olympics and all this stuff to have been like an active climber and really involved in all these different levels i mean it's just that's just awesome I'm, I'm so pleased to have lived through the whole lot yeah i just hope that i'm lived through a few more changes although god knows what they're going to be next who knows what the next best thing will be it's great though isn't it it's really cool to have lived that that, that whole journey is just brilliant i saw some footage of you at some point doing an interview and and you know you tossed out that that oft used phrase living the dream what do you think that sort of means to you and then is there sort of a era in your climbing where you know you were just you just hit the stride you were you were like everything was clicking in all ways do you, do you remember a time when it was just like this was this was all what I've always dreamed of I would never have imagined that my life would unfold in such a way that it has done so uh, so I'm like I'm completely living the dream. Like, you know, I, I was the guy who would like buy the magazines and be like, whoa, like, 
be so cool to do those routes and imagine getting a picture in a magazine and then and then here I am doing all that stuff. So I'm totally living the dream. And you ask when, I think I've been living the dream like for flipping years now. And it just gets it just gets better and better. Like it honestly gets better and better and it keeps on changing. And even now, it just seems as good as it's ever been. And, and like last year was such a good year. I did loads of really cool trad stuff. I don't think I was climbing better than I've ever climbed before. I just was really, really enjoying it. And being able, being lucky enough to have carved out a life where I can, you know, I can, I can organize my, my uh, route setting and my coaching and the other bits of work that I do and, and, and do a lot of climbing myself and climb with my kids and go on holidays and stuff. It is. It's just. It's just the best. You know. It's great. I'm flipping well lucky. Well lucky. All right, folks. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Steve for connecting. Super fun. And now I will correct Steve. He said that he did mutation. In 1988. Now, I'm sure it was just a slip of the tongue, not really like fading neurons. But he actually did it in 1998. And I caught that in the edit. Not that I knew that fact, but when I started thinking about like him climbing it in 1988, us being the same age, that would have put me as a junior in high school, which, you know, at that point he would have been 17, which certainly these days is something that happens you know people climb their hardest sometimes at that age but we had talked about how we'd gone back to sport climbing so the age didn't line up with the date turned out he did that route in 1998 which still would have made it the first of its grade when it was put up so that's cool it doesn't change anything um i just wanted to make sure that that was cleared up plus it adds you know it adds a small piece of evidence that Steve McClure doesn't remember everything that happens exactly the way it happened. So, Steve, we still could have met in that gully, buddy. Still could have met up there. So, I'll let you know if I do hear back from Garth, and he either confirms or fixes the story, or if I hear from the mystery person that was not Steve McClure. And they're like, yeah, dude, it was me. Remember? All right, you can check out all of Steve McClure's goings-on at steve-mcclure.com. And also Steve has an autobiography, Beyond Limits, A Life Through Climbing. And I looked over at Amazon and um, it is available in the United States. It's, uh, I think, getting a physical copy is pretty expensive, um, but they do have the Kindle version. So if you want to fill in all the details of uh, Steve's life that weren't talked about in this thing, you can go back and check that out. All right. I hope you guys are enjoying what's left of the fall here, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. The door kind of slammed closed here in Colorado this last week, although it's cracking back open. That nice Colorado sun comes out. Anyway, when you're out there, take care of each other, be safe, and check your knots. on purpose. I don't have to miss. I believe you. So what happens now? We face each other as God intended. Sportsmanlike. 
No tricks, no weapons. Skill again, skill along. You mean you'll put down your rock and I'll put down my sword and we'll try and kill each other like civilized people? I can kill you now. Frankly, I think the odds are slightly in your favor at hand fighting. So my fault being the biggest and the strongest. I don't even exercise. <laughs>